Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is the Amistad case. We'll begin the story in Africa and the culture of Sierra Leone, learn about the actual Amistad ship, the revolt on board, the court battles, the Supreme Court decision, and the aftermath of the case. We hope you enjoy the discussion. All right, we're going to talk about the Amistad case today. And per the norm, I don't know anything about this. I've been told right before we started recording, I heard someone made a movie about it. I never heard of the movie, never saw the movie. And to be honest, this came up in our line because of our patrons on patreon.com backslash black history for white people voted for this to be one of the topics that we cover. But I, I don't know anything. So Garen, you're gonna have to paint a very great picture for me on what's happening with this. All right. So for this story, we're going all the way back to 1839, but actually setting it up, going to move back even a little further. In 1808, America banned the international slave trade. So slavery was still practiced in America, any slaves who were here, but we banned the international slave trade. And any ships that were buying and selling slaves were treated as pirates from that point. So this story is a slave revolt that takes place on a slave ship where these enslaved Africans who had just been enslaved, they rose up against and took control of the ship. And then they were brought They ended up in America on Long Island, brought down to Connecticut, and the American court system basically had to decide what to do with these self-liberated Africans. And there were competing tensions, competing forces, because in America at that time, there was a huge fear of in the South of slave revolts. Because Haiti had liberated itself, there had been the Haitian Revolution where the enslaved people of Haiti rose up and gained their own freedom. And there was also the Nat Turner Rebellion where the, the about 160 slaves, enslaved people fought for and temporarily liberated themselves and they killed dozens of white people who had been enslaving them to gain their own freedom. But then they, the slave revolt was put down and Nat Turner and those slaves were killed. But then as a result, there was this ripple, this shockwave of fear that went out throughout the South where all these enslavers kind of looked around, realized they're only in a lot of these places about half the population. And they kind of realized that they they just had a lot of fear of a slave revolt. And so here with the Amistad case, you have these enslaved Africans who revolted, killed the captain and the cook, who were fighting to keep them in bondage. A couple of the other sailors jumped overboard and fled. And then they captured the the two Spaniards who had been their former enslavers. And so then the, the court system had to grapple with these categories of, are these men to be, are, the, are Ruiz and Montez pirates? Which under international law, they kind of were because they were continuing the, 
the international slave trade, which had been abolished? Or were these Africans pirates because they had commandeered the ship that didn't belong to them? And so there was the, the allegations that they were pirates. Or did they have the right to self-defense? Or were they slaves revolting? The court system had to grapple with that. And so the Amistad case itself became, and we don't really recognize this properly today, just how important it was for shaping the culture. It was a huge, pivotal cultural moment that just blew up to a massive degree in the culture of its day. It was front page news stories throughout America and even globally throughout the time that the case was being litigated, which was about two years. At that time, there were multiple dramifications of it. There were lithographs and pictures and paintings and art and music. It was a cultural phenomenon. A play. Yeah. (laughs) They made a play of it, a production that went around. They made wax figurines that they put on display so that people could come and see wax depictions of the Amistad Africans. And they paid to come see them in prison as well. Yeah. It was just a whole spectacle. Yeah, they, they eventually even kind of went on tour and in order to raise funds to go back to Africa. They, they went on tour, which just shows the, the popular interest in the case. But that's all kind of jumping ahead. I just kind of wanted to paint the picture of the story, and then now we're going to jump back into it and kind of meet the Amistad Africans from the beginning with their roots in Africa. Mm-hmm. So they were from Sierra Leone. There were 53 of them that were on the ship during the revolt. And they were, they were all from Sierra Leone. Most of them were from the interior of Sierra Leone. And when you say they're on the ship, like they were taken yeah. and forced on the ship. Yes, they so were like, hey, enslaved yeah. and brought onto the ship. Mm-hmm. But, but they were initially from Sierra Leone and the inner region. And part of the dynamics of what happened throughout Africa is that the international slave trade approached different African tribes in the coastal areas, because you get to the coast first, and basically made this offer of, we'll give you guns and munitions and other stuff if you provide us with slaves. And I think a a lot of white people will kind of repaint history through this alternate lens where like, well, slavery was happening in Africa already, and it was Africans who were also complicit in it because they were selling slaves, and almost kind of like both sides were doing it to a little bit excuse the international slave trade and the American importation of slaves. An important thing to realize with the dynamic is that basically the white people who were starting the international slave trade They approached these African tribes, and most of them did not engage in the international slave trade. But the few that were willing to were the ones that they that received all the munitions and guns. And so those people, and in the case in Sierra Leone, it was the Vai people, agreed to engage in the slave trade, and they got all these munitions and guns. So then their territory just massively expanded, and they expanded their territory fifty miles inland, and took control of all the coastal areas. And so it was a little bit of this dynamic uh, in economics. Sometimes it's called like a race to the bottom. It's like a, a situation where whoever is willing to do engage in the bad practice is the one who's going to become dominant and the one who's going to take control of everything. And so there was a race to the bottom throughout Africa, but a lot of the Africans didn't want to and didn't engage in with the international slavers. It's just that the ones who did got the guns and became dominant. So the, the system was still set up by, and the, the real first cause and polluting factor was not 
on the African side, it was the international slavers who were, were setting up the dynamics in the system. So these Amasad Africans, they were captured in a variety of ways. A lot of them were just captured, just kidnapped on the roads while they were traveling. I think 11 or 12 of them were kidnapped just while they were traveling to purchase clothes. In a lot of cases, there was that was a big big component of it. Some of them were captured in war, in fights between some of the competing factions. Some of them were sold, a few of them were sold into slavery in payment of debt. And then some of them were just tricked into slavery. Some of them actually were together and were offered a tour of one of the Spanish ships by some of the Spaniards. And then they went on board to tour these ships. And as soon as they got on board, they were put in shackles and enslaved. Which is pausing for a second there. Hmm. It's just crazy that human beings can be that cruel and duplicitous to pretend to befriend these Africans, leading them onto the ship with this promise of just showing them a tour to, so they can see what how the ship works and then to immediately just enslave them. It's just so cruel. I mean, I talk about this a lot, how it's hard to empathize with that at all in the least bit. And I can hear something like that and I feel like I should empathize more or I should feel, I don't know, there's like a level of that's so crazy that it's hard to empathize with. Mm-hmm. It's hard to, I don't know, mm-hmm. I should have thought in my head. Yeah. When I, it's like I want to be more sad about it, and I am, but that is so terrible. You know, like We're just glossing over it, not on purpose, but just it's part of the story, and you know, this isn't the only thing time that this has happened in yeah, it's hard. history but it's like I don't again it comes back to like oh, what do I do with this like I can't. Well it's uncomfortable and unfathomable and I think that's the hard thing is that it's hard to grasp you know that that, that kind of heinous activity is going on Yeah, and so it's like you don't know what to do with it. It's very, it's an awkward space to be in. It's awkward to hear it it's awkward to regurgitate it. I'm sad. Yeah, it's hard to empathize with because it's not something, an experience that we really can relate to today other than just right. the idea of kidnapping. I mean... It feels so unreal. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. To enter into what would that have felt like for these Africans who just were free peoples and had families. And that's something with the international slave trade that we forget or gloss over also is just the families that were left behind and a lot of these people had families and people who loved them and brothers and sisters and parents. And then they're just enslaved and taken away. And just to the loss that they would have felt and the disorientation of being put in shackles by these people who moments ago had been pretending to be your friend. And then just knowing in that moment that your entire life, all your relationships, everything is taken away and robbed from you. And that that was the reality of what people did to people for just hundreds for of money. years. Mm-hmm. The the Amistad Africans were mostly from a tribe called Mindi, but they were there were actually multiple tribes that they represented. Mostly Mindi, but also Temni, Bondi, Kono, Gola, and Loma. But they, over the course of their stay in America, they actually just agreed to all refer to themselves as Mindi. And they did that because they just formed a strong bond with one another throughout their stay. And they just wanted to have a a single common identity. And they referred to themselves as Mindy and kind of adopted each other into this single group identity. 
they were a variety of backgrounds, but a lot of them were rice farmers in Africa. Mm-hmm. And something neat about rice farming in Africa was just that it was a community-owned and operated system of rice farming. So they worked together. They were from a cooperative and collectivist culture that valued family and community. One of them was a blacksmith. One was a merchant who knew four languages that he used to sell his, his wares. Another was a hunter who earned distinction by killing five leopards, which, I mean, No yeah, big deal. That's not... A, <laughs> that, wow. You said that's five? Awesome. Five. I mean, one is one thing, but yeah. five. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would take one. And then several of them were skilled weavers because there was a strong kente cloth tradition in Sierra Leone. Mm-hmm. And then four of them were from upper classes. One of them who became the leader, Sinke, was the son of a chief. And he was a leader and he... We'll, we'll come back to him, but he was just a strong leader and very well-spoken and intelligent and brave. So the the slaves, once they were once they were enslaved, the Amistad Africans were taken to the Lamboco slave factory in Sierra Leone on the coast, where they were to be exported. And we're not going to get too much into this. At some point, we could get more into these slave factories and what they were like and the cruelty that was operated there. But one thing that I read that I just wanted to bring out was that the leader of this slave factory was a man named Pedro Blanco. And he was an aristocrat and a slave trader, and he considered himself to be a man of the highest honor and integrity. His word was his bond. And in fact, once his honor was slighted when a host refused to light a cigar for him, so he pulled out a gun and he shot the man dead because he couldn't take any affront to his honor. Which, pausing there, just to show just how self-deceived these people were. To consider themselves, they, they lied to themselves to the degree that they convinced themselves that they were people of honor and then were willing to just, just casually discard human lives in service of this position that they viewed themselves in, of being wealthy, of being honorable, but their honor was only directed towards the people they considered human and they were willing to dehumanize others in order to maintain this this honor. Just how self-deceived humans can become both because of in service of pride and in service of wealth. And that's a warning to us because we are also human. That's a warning to us that our own self-interests can be so distorting of our worldview And so that should just be a warning to pursue humility as the virtue that is necessary above everything else because without humility, you don't have the ability to actually see reality accurately because you're constantly going to lie to yourselves. And we lie to our own selves in order to build a worldview where we can win, where we can have advantages. And it's so dangerous. Yeah. So then the Africans were carried on the slave ship, the Tessera, which was a large slave ship, to Havana, Cuba, and there was a little bit of an attempted revolt on that ship, but it wasn't successful because that was a much larger slave ship and with a bigger crew. But it kind of maybe planted the seed so that some of the Africans then, when they were put on the Amistad, they kind of had this idea already planted. And so then on the Amistad, it was this smaller slave schooner that was from, it was 53 Africans, and it was just going from 
Havana, Cuba to Principe. So it's just a short run. It was not stocked to cross the Atlantic, which really, once the Africans took control, they wanted to immediately cross the Atlantic to go back to Sierra Leone. But there wasn't enough supplies or water. Um, it wasn't the ship that was built to make that journey. So they, they took control, fought against the they immediately, the first person they actually fought against was the cook because the cook was threatening, I think, just to mess with them. But he was threatening that they were going to be eaten and cannibalized upon yeah. their arrival. Yeah. And so in just this fear of, of that, they, on a moonless night, freed themselves from their shackles and they went and they, they killed the cook and they went to take control of the ship and fought the captain who fought back and killed one of them, mortally wounded another. And so then they killed the captain. The sailors jumped overboard and fled. And then they captured Ruiz and Montez, the men who had claimed ownership of them. And an interesting note here is just that they didn't kill Ruiz and Montez. And in fact, they actually took them and put them in the same shackles that Ruiz and Montez had been using to hold them and gave them the exact same rations that the Africans had been receiving, which was two half teacups of water every day and a a light food ration. And they did that for two days so that Ruiz and Montez could feel the injustice of it and feel what it felt like to be in that position. Mm. But then they let them go and gave them a full ration. And they said basically... We did this to show you that no human should be treated this way. But then they didn't continue the cruelty or try to get revenge on them. They then let them wander the ship freely, knowing that they were outnumbered, obviously. Just kind of shows the place that the the Africans were in was just much more compassionate and empathetic than where Ruiz and Montes had been. And that speaks to, you know, just even the language in which we use words like Africans, you know, a lot of times there's these distinctions of others, other, like othering us, that's kind of built into our language. And so, you know, they were African, but Africa is a continent, not a country, and they're people. And so they were West Africans, they were Sierra Leoneans. And, you know, their intelligence, it wasn't just Singbe. It's like these people had to come together and unite under probably different languages, all these different backgrounds to have this commonality in order to reclaim their lives by people who had taken their lives. And so I just wanted to kind of insert that. It's hard for me to hear words, certain words, they're triggering, not because of the person that's saying them, but because of the connotation just from a a global perspective of how Black people, you know, Black bodies are viewed. And even in the storytelling, it's just like, it's really hard. It's just hard as a black woman to hear certain stories because even like the movie itself, it's very white centering and you know white heroism and 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 not so much focused on the people themselves. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. There's so much baggage with the English language even because of how white supremacy has right caused even the word Africans can be used. It's it, triggering. It can, cause depictions in people's minds of these tribal backwaters when in reality, I mean, Africa, I've been to Africa, there's highways with cities with skyscrapers and so much beauty. And I mean, Africa has many of the fastest growing economies in the world right now. The depiction that people have is just wrong. In many cases, most of the Amistad Africans were from cities. They weren't from tribal areas. They were mostly not rural people. They were from... 
They were from cities. They weren't tribal. There's just there's just so much so much diversity. And then his his name his name was actually Singbe, but they his name became Joseph Sinke. Just the stripping of identity is just so hard to even tell these stories because there's so much Americanization, which is like colonization and white supremacy, and the way we tell the stories, which then it gives the degrees of separation that we need as Americans to be able to detach ourselves from stories. And we talked about that earlier where it's like, I can't even fathom, you know, yeah, it's like the language that's built in to help us to be desensitized. And for a black body, like I'm in black skin, it's just, it's hard, it's like very hard. And I can imagine it's harder for people that their bubble, so like their world, so their neighborhood, the place they work, the pla- the where their children go to school, you know, the less different the people are, not just uh, right. ethnically, but socioeconomically, the less different they are, the harder it is to probably imagine, like close the gap on on that. They can't empathize as well. Like the smaller your kind of world is, where you don't see like I would just think about like the last week of your life. Really, how different of people are you interacting with right. on a weekly? But in the last week, I mean, I would say probably most most white people probably are not are probably just interacting with just white people, and maybe they see yeah. other ethnicities, you know, when they're driving to work or something like that. But it, but I would probably say that people that hang out, people that are involved with people that not only look different than them, but spend their money differently than them. And all these things probably are easier to empathize with these stories than someone whose worldview is very limited limited and monolithic. Well, and then too, just things like the primitive images of Africa, like Africa as a continent has contributed so much to civilization, math, science, arts, beauty, like culture, there's so many things that the continent of Africa has contributed, but I was doing a website just the other day for a business, and like the stock images were the weirdest things, like hungry African children, which my site has nothing to do with Africa. But just that kind of thing, like primitive, savage, you know, there's this image imagery that comes, you know, missionaries going because they're heathen, you know, just all this stuff when Africa was actually evan- uh, evangelized before America. But it's just, it invokes these images that allow people to say, well, of course, but look, we were able to introduce the Christ to them or, you know, just these weird rationalities. And I think, like, even if they, even if a society is primitive, and there are places in the world where they are, that even in itself is not... A negative thing. That's We can't right. judge them based off of their primitiveness. It just seems so such a shallow... It is shallow. And it's... But, e- but they weren't primitive. Exactly. But at the same time, like, people love Vikings. And Vikings were, like, savage, primitive... The things that they did were horrible, but we have all these, all this glorification of it. But there's a different imagery for Vikings than there are for people of African descent in the continent. It's crazy, mm-hmm. but yeah. Anyway, or even just, I mean, that kind of also inter- intersects with 
a lot of the Amistad Africans knew multiple languages. Some that, one of them knew eight languages. And so the intelligence of people who don't speak English is something that we often just, there's this cultural bias where if people don't speak English, then they're viewed as less intelligent, even though a lot of these Mindy people were more intelligent than, I mean, so bilingual, trilingual. Yeah. He, Singbei learned English, memorized all these portions of the Bible because the abolitionists were mostly Christians. So Singbei was in order to be kind of build connections with them, was learning scripture. And he probably didn't actually really convert to Christianity, but he was became fluent in it. And he learned to read and write and all this stuff all in the two years that they were in going through these legal battles. After the trauma like, of being enslaved, like the trauma of being enslaved. He even described it as it's hard to learn with a guillotine hanging over your neck. Describing like this all that time there was this threat of death that was hanging over them. And yet he, even with that anxiety, was able to learn all that he learned. Clearly was just a brilliant man. Exactly. And we want to honor and paint the, and, and kind of center the Africans and paint them in that more accurate light of they were not tribal people. They, I mean, Sing, Singbe was a, a noble. He but was he, a yeah. son of an African king. But even if he was tribal, mm-hmm. that does not make him less. But the, like we were talking about the English language, Americans do not have mastery of the English language. Americans on any given day and twice on Sundays speak in proper English, but people who learn the American language and speak with an accent are labeled and otherized and disrespected as not being able to speak English when by some by the same people who would say speak English, you know, or say y'all or say I don't know, just any word that's like a hodgepodge <laughs> that's not even a real word. It's it's just, it's insulting. Yeah, really, It's as soon as we hear that somebody speaks English with an accent, you should automatically know that that person is multilingual. Exactly. Which and should deserving be a sign of, of intelligence. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. anyway, Garen, mm-hmm. t- take it over. Sorry. All right, So <laughs> so the Africans... Further showing their endurance and bravery and resilience, they steered this ship. They had no sailing experience and they had very little water on hand because the the ship was not stocked to travel far. And yet they were able to endure through probably hurricanes or some really bad storms. It was the summer in the Caribbean and the way that the descriptions line up with probably they came near to some hurricanes. They bottomed out in some places where the ship just went through two shallow waters and started to take on water. And yet they were able to island hop among the Bahamas, going and getting fresh water in order to keep the water supply stocked and make their way more than a thousand miles all the way up to eventually they made it to Long Island. And they went. some of them went on board or went ashore on Long Island to get more water and restock. And then a U.S. Navy ship, the Washington, encountered and captured the Amistad as they were kind of sailing back to it or or rowing back to it. And so the American captain, Meade, the captain of the Washington, he basically, he captured it in hopes to get something called salvage rights where basically under international law, if a ship was liberated from piracy, the the liberator got money for it, got salvage rights. Mm -hmm. So he captured it 
and he towed the ship not to Long Island, which was close by and would have made sense, but down to Connecticut because Connecticut was still a slave state at that point. And so Meade would have known that if the Africans were re-enslaved, then their value would be added to his own salvage rights. So he was mm. a scumbag. Yeah, so he, he towed them down to a slave state and they were immediately there was this judge, Judge Judson, who came aboard the Washington and basically was setting up the legal battle of what, what was going to happen. And he, Judson did some investigating. He didn't talk to the Africans at all. He only interviewed the Spaniards, Ruiz and Montez, who claimed the Africans as their property and you know made false allegations about everything that had gone down. And so then Judson ruled that the, the Amistad Africans, the, the Mindy people would be tried for piracy and potentially repatriated as uh, to Cuba to be re-enslaved. And so... What, what year are we in right now? 1839. Mm-hmm. But there on the Washington, even as Judge Judson was doing his initial investigation and setting up the legal battle that would come, there was also Dwight James, an abolitionist, who also came on board. And there was some journalists that came on board. And right from the beginning, these abolitionists and journalists set up this popular culture front of what was going to happen. So Dwight James recognized that the Amistad Africans had a good case because they had been illegally brought into the international slave trade. And so he wanted to set them up and use them to fight back against the slave trade and fight, fight against slavery and just stir sympathy for the abolitionist cause. And then these reporters and this one artist came and drew a picture and a depiction of Singbe as this noble African son of a chief that he was. And it was kind of a new way to depict these Africans. A lot of time in America, America had was steep in slavery at that point and all kinds of white supremacy. And it was this new and kind of, it, it took off these, these lithographs that were made, uh, these depictions of Singbe sold out and then more were made and then they sold out again and they were run on the front pages of newspapers throughout mm-hmm. America, especially in the North where abolitionism was a stronger cause, it moved the ball for how Africans were viewed in America. So James Ferry was a 30-year-old man who had been kidnapped in Sierra Leone as a child, but as a result, he knew the Vi language, and he ended up being brought in to translate for the Africans. Which, just pausing there for a second... Imagine being these Mindy people and you have now been through, your whole life was taken away from you. You've been through this revolt and then just this long journey across the ocean where you were constantly short on water and fighting for your survival, afraid that you'd be captured and re-enslaved. And then now you come to this new country where people say that it's a free country, but also you're hearing that there's slavery and it's just confusing. And then to finally have someone who speaks your main language um, Mm -hmm. and to have another, someone who looks like you and who can just kind of share your story and know where you're from must have been just such a relief. And so this, this man, James Ferry, became a translator and also he ended up kind of being 
testifying on behalf of and being in support of the Amistad Africans. And he helped to tell their story and he helped to translate interviews of them. And the press just picked those up and ran with them. So he recorded the first accounts of their struggle. And the important point is he started their story back in Africa so that the American people came to know them first as free people who then were enslaved and then now had regained their freedom. And that that was the shape of the story versus the, the way that the, the slavers in America wanted to cast the story was that these were enslaved people yeah. who had rebelled and revolted and now needed to be re-enslaved. So it, it, started, it was important that, it, it, that these early accounts that were published started with them with their freedom in Africa and showed them first in that dignity that that really that white people needed to be able to empathize with them and see their humanity. And so James Ferry was a big part of telling their story in that context. And that's like a big, you know, cough cough American history lessons in America. <laughs> that would be a great thing to do just to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Across these the were board. free people. And then tell the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So at the initial hearing, the, the beginning of the official legal case, the charges of piracy against the Africans were quickly dropped. And the focus shifted to the property claims of Spain, Cuba, and the Spaniards. And because the at this early hearing dropped the piracy charges, the Africans had been kind of imprisoned pretty strictly and harshly, but they gained a lot more freedom after that because it was found that they hadn't broken American laws and it just became a question of, are they going to be repatriated to Cuba? But they still were kind of imprisoned after that, but they were given more freedom and they were allowed to go out to these green spaces. Somewhere around a thousand people came and visited them every day, which just, again, reemphasizes how much of a cultural phenomenon this was, that this wasn't just some little thing that was happening, that there was huge popular interest. A thousand visitors a day came well, I was just going to say, John Adams, he was one of two presidents who, who did not enslave people. His father was the second president, John Adams, the second president of the United States. And he took on the case of the soldiers in the Boston Massacre. But yeah, he actually took their, their case on. And he was an advocate against slavery. Mm-hmm. Only two he and his father were one of two, like they were the only two presidents that didn't did not enslave people. Thomas Jefferson had in like excess personally? of yeah. Thomas Jefferson had in excess of six hundred. Like some of the presidents who enslaved people, they had six hundred, three hundred people that they enslaved. Yeah, Thomas Jefferson was trash. <laughs> Even from a worldly, just kind of like secular worldview, he's not great. Mm-hmm. Garbage. But anyway, go ahead. So in the courtyards then, the these open air spaces, the Mindy Africans had these large crowds and they started to perform for them. And in Mindy culture, there is this dynamic where as you advanced as a Mindy warrior, you went through these certain rituals and rites of passage and some of those were actually acrobatics. That it was a sign of being a warrior and was viewed as being a warrior if you could perform like feats of acrobatics. And so the Mindy warriors started to do acrobatics that in America were viewed differently because in America it was kind of seen as circus theater. 
And so the Africans wouldn't have known that that's kind of the lens that they're being viewed through. And actually the abolitionists who were helping them and supporting them were unnerved by it. They were uneasy with it because all these people started to come and even pay money to see them. And part of the appeal of seeing them was both their story and the empathy with their story, but also that they were doing all these cool tricks. And this is while they're still in prison. Yeah, while they're still in prison. They were making money. Making money. From people coming to and see raising, them. Yeah, raising funds, which were then used both to buy things and for their legal defense and for the abolitionists who were helping support them. But yeah, they were raising their own money by doing acrobatics in this courtyard. Well, But it actually did engage a lot of sympathy on the parts of white people, and it did raise their popularity, and it became part of the fascination with them. One note of caution on that is that white people in general through history have always been more willing to accept black people who are entertaining and as entertainers. And so like even employment opportunities have become in entertainment or in the entertainment space became open to black people before other employment opportunities yep. came open. Because white people are kind of, if they're being entertained or put at ease, then it's easier to recognize the humanity of these black people. And that's kind of the dynamic of what happened. Is It, it is kind of a sad indictment of white culture at the time that it took that for, that they had to be entertained in order to engage with and, and have their sympathies enlisted. But it also was a reality at the time and it was a good reality that white people throughout the North flocked into the abolitionist cause as a result of the Amistad case. So you had, uh, abolitionists were using it to recruit because uh, prior to the Amistad case, abolitionism had been seen as kind of radical. But now here's this case with all these now beloved Amistad, Mindy, African people who are widely publicized in the press, different bios are being printed, pamphlets telling the stories of each of them. And they kind of became a little bit like celebrities at the time. And so there was just a widespread sympathy where people who previously had been like, no, I'm not abolitionist, they're kind of radical. Now we're saying like, yeah, I kind of resonate with this. I, I do think that they should be let go. And so it became a cultural shift that increased the popularity of the abolitionist cause, reduced resistance to it, particularly in the North, and just engaged a lot of sympathy and money in the defense of the, the Amistad Africans. Mm. Another breakthrough came when... So so the translator that I talked about earlier, James Ferry, he spoke Vi, which the Amistad Africans spoke as a second language. Some of them spoke it as a second language. But the, their actual main language is Mindy, and they didn't have a translator yet who could speak Mindy. But then there's this professor who... I just think this is kind of a, a fun aside. He learned to count to 10 in Mindy through... Through the translator who's speaking by, he learned how to count to 10 in Mindy. Those are the only words he knew in Mindy. But this was kind of crafty. He went to the docks where a bunch of sailors were moving in and out in the docks in New York. And he just started walking around this busy dock, counting to 10 over and over and over again in Mindy. Until eventually, two sailors came up to him and just started talking to him in Mindy. And he was like, you know what I'm saying? And they responded because they knew English. And so he found these, tr- th- these two guys became translators who then spoke Mindy and English so they could go straight from 
English to Mindy and back rather than having to go English via Mindy via English. So it made translation a lot easier. And as a result, a bunch more publications and stories were published that continued to broaden the appeal through telling the stories of, of the Mindy people. So another hearing arrived, the next court date, and people from every facet of society thronged into the courtroom. There was just journalists everywhere. There was crowds gathered outside. There's thousands of people were gathered in interest to, to know what was going to happen with this case. And James Covey, one of the translators, testified to great effect. He said that the prisoners speak the Mindy language, have Mindy names, and are from Mindy. Pratt, the other translator who'd been found on the docks, testified similarly that these, his fellow countrymen, were recently from Africa and could not have been enslaved while the slave trade had still been legal. They could not have been longtime residents of Cuba, as Ruiz and Montes, the Spaniards, claimed that they were. So the two guys head of that ship, even though they were treated initially with their same rations as the people they were enslaving, then they were kind of free to go about the ship and stuff. They're still going against. Yeah, they're still through the courts trying to re-enslave wow. the, the, these Mindy people. Even in this other country where there's thousands of people and widespread sympathy for them, they're still fighting that cause to try to get them back in slavery. Even yeah, even after their own lives had been spared. Wow. Uh, so Singbei, Grabo, and Fuli, three of the Amistad Mindy people, also testified and they described their lives in Africa in detail. And Singbei, this just again goes to show how charismatic and just fascinating of a person he was. He just captured the attention of the people, even though he didn't speak English well. Everyone just was like laser focused and he animated what he was describing, almost acted out his life in Africa and acted out. He got down on his hands and knees and showed people the chains and how they were put on him and dramatized it in a way that a lot of people at that time didn't know what the Middle Passage was like. And he, Singbei, raised the cultural awareness and also the, the drama that depicted, like the, the play that was made depicting the story of the Amistad Africans, helped to raise the cultural awareness of just how cruel the Middle Passage was. We wait, know today, wait, you're saying Middle Passage, that's the... That's the journey from Africa across the Atlantic and like the slave ships and how cruel and inhumane the slave ships were. A lot of people then didn't know it. Right. Like we know it I now. Mean a lot of, I mean, a lot of people probably still don't know it, just to be fair. But Yeah, that's yeah. true. But I mean, just like the fact that there was like three feet of headspace and they were chained closely together, huge mortality rates and diseases that would spread and no fresh air, such limited rations that everyone was like on the edge of life and death. Strong and healthy African men were viewed on the Middle Passage as potentially a threat, so they were beaten to near death just to incapacitate them so that they wouldn't have a good chance to revolt. It was just an, a completely cruel journey that most people in that day didn't know about. And so Singbei helped to raise the cultural awareness of that in this which is sad that he had to do that, considering the cru- the the cruelty of American slavery once they arrived. People, the way people were treated in America was enough. They didn't have to know what was occurring on the ships 
to see the cruelty that was existing right there in front of them. But yes, absolutely awful. The whole, the whole situation, the whole, all of it. And, and, and the irony of yeah, many people that were enslaved that probably heard about this is probably I can't imagine being an enslaved Mindy person. They're enslaved, right? They didn't get in the news like this and pirated and blah, blah. And mm. seeing their case and getting all the attention where in people's backyards they could see those same people. Mm-hmm. Right. It's, it's like so why Amer- white America has to be, you know, a case has to be made for what's right before their eyes and what many of them are complicit in, participating in. It's crazy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. Yeah, there, was, there was such wide sympathy for them that Judge Judson, the judge of the, of the hearing, had trouble even controlling the crowd. And every time the lawyers who represented the Mindy people would make a, a point, the crowd would actually cheer. So there's all this like social pressure that came down on Judge Judson. Who background on Judson? He was a racist, I and mean, he was wi- widely known for having been opposed to the education of free black children. Was was kind of part of how he made a name for himself in politics, hmm. and he was part of the colonization society, and was just part of he was a racist. So everyone kind of expected him to rule against the Mindy people. But then when the hearing finally came down, he said that the Mindys were born free, never since, have been, and still of right are free and not slaves. So they won the case. Actually, everyone was expecting it to go the other way to the point that the abolitionists were ready with a plot to jailbreak the Mindy people and try to send them to freedom through the Underground Railroad. And then President Van Buren, the president at the time, was ready to immediately export them back to Cuba before there was a chance for an appeal. Like he had a ship ready to go to take them back to Cuba before an appeal could be handed down or or processed. So everyone kind of expected it to go the other way. But then there was just this jubilation that they had won. But then immediately it was appealed by Van Buren to the Supreme Court and the ruling the lower court ruling was stayed, so it just continued to remain in limbo. And the, these, the Mindy people didn't know how the American legal system worked. They didn't know about appeals and you know, staying orders of courts. So they thought that they had won and thought that they got their freedom. And then shortly thereafter were told, like, no, you actually have to stay in jail longer. So they were just crushed by it. And just... Again, to like re-enter into like to not brush over that to like enter into like what that would have felt like. You're in a strange land where you're trying just to get home, and just the crushing blow of and and Van Buren. What did he have to gain by appealing the decision? Here's this thousands of people gathering, wanting these people to be free, but then the the president is appealing the decision to try to re-enslave them, not even in America, but to send them to Cuba. I wonder, I almost wonder if the judge did that because he knew that it would get appealed and wanted the favor of the people. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know, that's just me kind of yeah, well, that making was, that up. But. Yeah, that was believed at the time. Like, that was what the abolitionists at the time who were surprised said that just the popular sympathy must have shaped the judge's opinion right? because he was just expected to have ruled the other way. 
So it was a crushing discouragement. The Supreme Court took up the case, and they convened on February 22nd, 1841, to hear the appeal. And again, crowd, huge crowds flocked to hear the case. And the Amistad Africans just were so nervous because they, they came to understand at that point that this is now the final decision. So just like very anxious for what was going to happen. Ruiz and Montes argued on the basis of an old treaty with Spain. In that treaty, Spain and America had pledged to protect and return one another's ships if they were seized from pirates. So Ruiz and Montes asserted that the slaves should be returned to them because the Africans had acted as pirates and stolen both the ship and themselves as pirates from Ruiz and Montes. So then it just became this convoluted <laughs> argument of like, wait yeah. a minute, are they slaves? Are they pirates? If you're a pirate, that means you have agency, <laughs> so you're not a slave. right? And it was just this convoluted argument where they stole themselves, but then they were not even supposed to, like they were illegally captured in the first place. Although Ruiz and Montes claimed that they had been enslaved from before, you know, before 1808, before the international slave trade was banned. So mm. they lied about right, that and said yeah. that they'd been enslaved the whole time. But then Caldwell, leading the defense, turned that argument on its head. He talked about how the, a 1920 law had said that Americans who engaged in international slave trade would be adjudged as pirates. And so he basically said, no, who are the real pirates? It's Ruiz and Montes are the ones who are pirates. Uh, the Africans, when they stole the ship, they had no goal except for trying to free themselves and trying to seek their freedom that would rightfully should have been theirs. And so ultimately, SCOTUS handed down a seven-to-one decision in favor of the Africans. They were never lawful slaves of the Spaniards and were rightful citizens of Africa, of Sierra Leone. But the court also found that America had no obligation to repatriate them, to pay for their journey back, back home. So then Marshall Wilcox told, went and told the, the Mindy people were not in the court at the time. They were waiting in the prison to hear what decision would be made. And so Marshall Wilcox went to tell them and he describes just that there was just such clear anxiety and they were like quiet and nervous and waiting. And then at Sinke's instruction or at his signal, they all sat down together to hear what had happened. And Marshall told them that the case had, the big court had come to a decision and they found that you, one and all, are free. So they raised their funds to return back to Africa. They had to actually, they basically went on tour and were helped by the abolitionists who were kind of using the tour to recruit for abolitionism. They were helped to raise the funds that they needed to return. And they went back and word kind of traveled ahead of them so that when they arrived at the shores of Sierra Leone, there was a group of 100 or so Mindy people that were waiting for and greeted them. And many of them had friends or family or acquaintances that had caught word of their return. And they were able to go and find their families and yeah. find their the loved ones who had missed them all this time. And I'm not going to go through all the stories, but there's one touching story I just want to tell of one of these reunions. So Borda one of the Mindy people, was reunited with his mother. He went with one of the missionaries. A, a few abolitionist missionaries had gone back with them to Africa. And so he went with one of the missionaries and they went by boat to the, the village that his mother was from. 
And when they arrived there, she wasn't there because she was out gathering firewood. So she, they just kind of sat and waited for her. And all of a sudden they heard a crashing sound. So they turn around and they see that she had been carrying the wood back, kind of balancing it on her head, and had been so shocked at the sight of Borda that the wood had all toppled and she just had started to cry. So then she came over to him and she raised her hands to her face with tears streaming down. This son that she had thought was dead was back. And the missionary who was with Borda testified later that he had never seen such a raw display of human emotion outside of art. The mother, weeping, clung to her son's feet and then began to sing. And then she held her palms to him in a ritual welcome. And again, going back to that point of the families that were left behind through the slave trade and just the devastation that was wrought by it and seeing the love of this mother for her son who she thought was dead and now receiving him back and her joy at it is just such a reminder of the cost and the human tragedy that under, underlie the, the slave trade. Something you said, it was like a real quick kind of blip that's stuck in my head is only that the Supreme Court of the United States. So like these are, you know, these are hopefully some of our brightest people, most favorable people in our society that we want to be on the Supreme Court. We don't want like trash bags on the Supreme Court. It was seven to one. There was one Supreme Court justice that voted against this. And I think that that's just, I have no idea who that was, but that is really frustrating. I don't under even understand how somebody could vote against that. And it's kind of embarrassing that someone from our Supreme Court voted against that case. I mm. think that's just really frustrating. And What is striking me is that for some of these families, it was like they were re-traumatized all over again because their families that are receiving their loved ones back but then the, the ones who died, it's like a, a hope that isn't realized. And so being re-traumatized and struck with grief, even on a deeper level, because you have this hope, if you're hearing that Singbay is back and, you know, not to suggest that they all came from one, you know, locale, but, you know, there had to have been, word travels fast and there had to have been communication that, you know, People have come back, and you're thinking that. And then think about people whose family members were enslaved, and they don't know what ship they were on. You know what I'm saying? Like, there, there's an expectancy that this can be, this whole horror of slavery, enslavement could be reversed, that a ship would be coming back. So then there's hope from probably a lot of people who lost their loved ones to enslavement. And then this ship comes back with people from that had been to America and they have empty arms again. Yeah, it's a false hope. It's a false hope. And we don't think about the trauma. We don't, we, we just don't think about the trauma. And we don't think, oh, it's like, oh, this is such a great story. They came back and this happened. No, like, think about the millions 
of people who lost, like Africa was depleted of resources, of human resources, of of community, of love, of sons, of daughters, of nieces, nephews, grandbabies, like husbands, wives. And And so, and say, yeah. So just the sheer terror of enslavement, but then people to come back and then that's not my loved one. (laughs) My loved one is not on that ship. It's just, it's horrific. It's like when you think about 9-11 and people, how everybody was looking for their loved ones and some people, you know, got reconnected, but many didn't. It's, it's just... It doesn't undo the tragedy. It's tragic. It's heartbreaking. Mm. So the aftermath of the Amistad ship, a few points on that is, uh, one, it actually inspired another similar ship, to revolt. There's a man, Madison Washington, who heard and knew the story of the Amistad Africans, and then he went back to his former plantation that he'd escaped from to try to free his wife, and he was captured in the process, and he was put on a slave ship called the Creole. And because he knew the story of the Amistad, he spread word, he was the cook, so he had access to other people, spread word and planned a revolt that took control of the Creole which then sailed to the Bahamas, which uh, didn't have slavery. And so they all gained their freedom through the Bahamas. And then it just shaped American popular culture. It caused a lot more sympathy and it was it helped the abolitionist movement grow a lot stronger. And, and this is about one generation before the Civil War, so you can see it, or like a half generation before the Civil War. So you can see how that movement it was one of the dominoes that fell in this march towards uh, the end of slavery in America. Marcus Redeker, who wrote a, a history of the Amistad, said, the Amistad Rebellion helped to change the social composition of the anti-slavery movement. It helped to establish and popularize the idea of legitimate armed self-defense for those seeking freedom, although it would take several years for these changes and others to create a revolutionary overthrow of the entire slave system. It may be said that in their own day and after, the Amistad rebels contributed to a shift in thinking about what might be possible in the war against slavery. So it was a pivotal part of history. And it was these brave and noble African Mindy people who took their life into their hands and self-emancipated themselves and then fought on this long journey through a bunch of highs and lows and storms and chaos in order to get back home and to their loved ones. And they showed their humanity and their image bearing to the American people and through that changed the world and changed history. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you're looking for more information on what we discussed, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. On our next episode, we will be talking with the vice president of The Witness, Ali Henney. We'll leave you with this quote from Cornell West. Justice is what love looks like in public.